Have you ever asked this question? Why am I here? If you have never asked it, you should. Maybe you have asked it, I hope you have, but there's still a blank where the answer should be. Or maybe there's lots of straight-throughs, scoring out of previous answers. You still don't feel you've got the right one. Or maybe you put one in there, but it's the wrong one, at least according to the Bible. Why am I here? Usually, our answer to that question is associated with a picture that we have of life, a metaphor, an image, a graphic. And that graphic, that metaphor for life and our life purpose, it changes everything. It changes the way we think, the way we feel, our ambitions, our aims, our words, our actions. As Rick Warren said in The Purpose Driven Life, the way we view our life determines how we live our life. Let me, let me give you some examples of these images of life, images that answer this question and the impact that they have upon our life. So, for example, if you think life is a circus, then I'm here just for entertainment. Or maybe you say life is a, life is a bungee jump. It's just about thrills and spills and adrenaline rushes. Or maybe you think life is a carousel. It's just a roundabout, a, a fairground attraction that just goes round and round and round, same old, same old, same old. Or, well, life is a minefield. Well, your life is always going to be about trying to avoid something blowing up in your face. That's basically what your life will be all about. Or life is a puzzle. It's a mystery. I have no idea what's going on. And I never will. Or what about life is a marathon? If so, then your main guiding principle is going to be endurance. Persevering. Keeping going. Battling through different challenges that life throws up in your face. Or maybe you say, well, life is a competition. If so, then you're going to be concerned about winning, beating the other person or the other people. Life is, a, life is a party. It's just about getting as much pleasure as we can. Or life is, life is a beach. It's about just getting maximum leisure for minimal work. Or life is a workshop. Life is just about working hard and working long and working and doing as much as we can. Or life is Instagram, just trying to multiply our followers and our likes. You see how our picture of life, our view of life, determines how we live our life. Now, all of these images I've given you so far are worldly pictures, worldly images, worldly metaphors that will result in worldly lives. And 
we want to ask today, what is the biblical picture of life? What's the biblical image that answers this question, why am I here? Why am I here? We started this series on purpose by looking at, at God's purpose, because that's the most important one. Our, our purpose must always come below God's. And we saw that, that God, God's purpose is His glory in the salvation of people. In other words, God fulfills His purpose by grace and truth-filled relationships. God makes Himself great through grace and truth-filled relationships, through the salvation of the undeserving that bring Him great fame and great glory. And that's what we, that's what we began with. God's purpose is God's glory that He gets through grace and truth-filled relationships. So, then we ask, okay, if that's God's purpose, what is ours? And we shouldn't be surprised if it's something very similar to God's. And it is, because our answer to this is we glorify God in grace and truth-filled relationships. Just as God glorifies Himself in that way, so we glorify God in that way. We make Him joyfully weighty and impressive and awesome through grace and truth-filled relationships with others. So, this is our answer to why am I here. And we want to see how Paul teaches us this from this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, we have to pause, though, because when we talk about making God great again or glorifying God, an error can come into our mind, a misunderstanding, and it's this. Oh, does that mean there are times when God is not great? Does that mean there are times when God is not glorious? If so, God has ceased to be God. And therefore, when we talk about God glorifying Himself, making Himself great, or we glorifying God and making God great, we must avoid falling into this mistake of thinking God's glory is up and down, or it fades and then comes to life again. No, God's glory is always the same. God is always the same. God is always glorious. We can't change that. God doesn't change that. But here's where the change does occur. If you think of a, of a superstar, an actor, they're on a stage, and, and there's a curtain in front of them. That, that actor, that superstar is, is still the same person, still equally gifted and talented, but the curtain in front of them is hiding that. It's veiling that so that it cannot be seen by the audience. So, the glory, as it were, is the same, and yet it's veiled, it's curtained, it's hidden 
Then you think, well, let's, let's pull the curtain back. So we pull the curtain back, and the star is there, but there's not an awful light. The spotlights aren't on yet. So you can tell that person's there, but really it's he, she is in shadow. They're obscured. Or you can imagine the curtain's pulled back, and then the spotlight's tippers. The star can be hidden by a curtain, obscured by lack of light, unseen because of lack of attention, or be unappreciated. And in that sense, we can bring more or less glory to God. God's glory is more or less seen. God's glory can be hidden or unveiled. It can be obscured in the shadows, or it can be spotlit. It can be seen, or it can be ignored. It can be appreciated or unappreciated. And therefore, when we say that God's purpose is His glory, or our purpose is God's glory, what we're saying is His glory is the same, but in life, we can hide or reveal it. We can obscure it or spotlight it. We can see it or ignore it. We can appreciate it or fail to appreciate it. And therefore, when we're talking about pursuing God's glory, making God great again, what we're saying is our great aim is pull back the curtain, shine the spotlight, see with focus, and deeply appreciate and admire and savor the glory of God. That is our purpose. That is why we are here. And that is done, that is achieved and accomplished, our purpose is fulfilled through grace and truth-filled relationships. God has chosen relationships to either hide or reveal His glory, spotlight or shade His glory, see or ignore His glory, appreciate or fail to appreciate His glory. That's what Paul brings before us here in 1 Corinthians, and in many other places in the Bible. And you can see it in two ways. He says, first of all, pursue the good of others, and then pursue the glory of God. And what he's showing us here is how these are not two separate things. They are inseparably connected. We pursue the good of others, and therefore we are pursuing the glory of God. We pursue the glory of God by pursuing the good of others. Let's, let's see that from this passage. If you know 1 Corinthians at all, you'll know that the Corinthian church was in really bad relational shape. It was in a mess. From chapter 1 on, even this chapter here, there's evidence of division after division after division, conflict after conflict. They were fighting. They were distanced from one another. It was, it was a mess. It was a relational mess. And as a result, 
God's glory was being hidden, obscured, unseen, and unappreciated. And, and it was especially, in this chapter at least, it was especially in the area of gray. It was in the gray areas of the Christian life that God's glory was being obscured. What do I mean by the gray areas? Well, there are some things in Scripture that are crystal clear, forbidden, or commanded. There are other areas that it's not so clear. It's more gray. It's more dependent on the circumstances. It's more a matter of wisdom than right or wrong. And in this chapter, what was crystal clear was idolatry is wrong. You see that, for example, in 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He was telling these Corinthians, look, I'm watching, and I'm seeing you're going to idolatrous temples and idolatrous services, and you're, you're sitting there with these worshipers, and you're partaking with them. You're sharing with them. You're, you're eating and drinking there, and then going to the Lord's table, and you're eating and drinking there. Stop this. Flee from this. This is completely wrong and completely unacceptable. This is black and white. But then there's gray. And, and the gray area was, should we eat the food that was offered at these temple idolatrous ceremonies? Don't go, but at these ceremonies, food is taken, it's offered to these idols, and then the idolaters take them home and they, and they eat the food themselves. What happens if you're invited to go and join there? Or you're buying meat in the marketplace and you don't know whether this meat has gone via an idolatrous temple. Paul is basically saying to him, that's, that's really up to your own conscience. And, and yet in, in the Corinthian church, they were making these areas of individual preference or individual wisdom, a matter of moral right and wrong. So, there was a yes party. Yes, we must eat that. You must never despise these good gifts of God. It doesn't matter what they've been used in. Uh, we're just going to eat everything. And then there were others who were saying, oh, that's so evil. You must have nothing whatsoever to do with that meat. And Paul said, look, the meat's irrelevant. You know, it's, it's no big deal meets me. It's not changed by the, by the service of idols. It's really more to do with other questions that you should be considering. You shouldn't be dividing over this, the yes party and the no party, and fighting over this. No, here's, here's the kinds of questions that you should be asking yourself in these areas of individual conscience of Christian liberty, and we're going to look at them in a moment. But I want to just pause because you're probably thinking, what's this got to do with me? Like, idol temples? Me offered to idol? Like, where is that happening in West Michigan? Well, it's not. Well, it probably is, but I don't know where it is. But there are other similar areas. Let's think of a very modern example. You take, for example, social media, okay? There's, there are areas of social media uh, the digital technology that are completely wrong. They, it's like flee from it. 
have nothing to do with it. It is clearly immoral and sinful. Run. But, of course, there's nothing innately wrong with the technology of social media, digital technology. It really depends how you view it, how you use it, what a hold it has on your life. People can use it for good. People can use it for evil. And therefore, there shouldn't be yes and no parties on this. And we, we fight people on the opposing sides. No, it's more, let's look at this in a much more grace and truth-filled way. So, whether it's meat offered to idols or social media, we are to pursue the good of others. And here are the questions, Paul says, that you want to ask yourself to help you know how to walk in these areas in a grace and truth-filled way. So, let me give you these questions. Verse 23a, and we don't have time to go through each of these verses. If you want to study it later, you can with the help of these questions. But here's the first question to ask. Will this help or harm other people? So, you see, it's not about is this in itself right or wrong, but will this help or harm other people? Then, next part of that verse, will this build up or break down other people? Third question, will this do good or do bad to others? Verse 24. 25 through 30, a complex passage, but basically summed up in this question, will this strengthen or weaken the conscience of others who differ from me? Fifth question, does this put an obstacle in the way of faith, of someone coming to faith or someone going on in the faith? And sixthly, does this help people to be saved? So, these are Paul's six questions, six criteria to help us navigate these areas where there isn't a clear moral command in the Bible. The the command is really, is this a grace and truth-filled way to live? And we know that by answering these questions. Will it help or harm other people? Will it build up or break down others? Will it do good or bad to others? Will it affect the conscience of others? Will it obstruct the faith of others? Does it help others to be saved? What do you notice? What is the one word that occurs again and again there? It's others, isn't it? It's about relationships with others. It's pursuing grace and truth-filled relationships with others. What Paul's basically saying here is, where the truth is not at stake… Grace is to be the underlying principle. Grace is to be the guiding, controlling power. What does that mean? It means putting the interests of others first. It means dealing with people not as they deserve, but in mercy. It means speaking the truth in love. It means putting the salvation of others ahead of my own personal comfort. It means sacrificing myself, but never sacrificing truth. 
It means serving others rather than serving myself. In all these ways, we are pursuing the good of others. And if we do that, if we do that, if we use these questions to guide us in these areas that are difficult to navigate, what happens? What happens is we pursue the glory of God. As we pursue the good of others, we are pursuing the glory of God. As we pursue the good of others, God's glory is unveiled. God's glory is spotlit. God's glory is seen. And God's glory is appreciated. Grace and truth-filled relationships reveal a grace and truth-filled God, which is how God wants to be known. How do we know that? Well, in the middle of this passage, verse 31, it says this, So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, okay, so he's, he's dealing with that specific situation of eating and drinking, but then he says, well, whatever you do in all areas of life, what? Do all to the glory of of God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's directly connecting the pursuit of God's glory with pursuit of others' good, isn't he? It's like all these verses are about others' good, and then he says, and if we do that, we will fulfill our purpose of glorifying God of making God great again. So, we glorify God in grace and truth-filled relationships. We make God great again in grace and truth-filled relationships. We eat, we drink, whatever we do, social media or whatever, we do all to build grace and truth-filled relationships. We're to reflect God's grace and God's truth in all our relationships. Now, I have to be honest, when I started studying this, I knew the verse I wanted to preach on, because this verse 31 is the classic verse for discerning our purpose, which is God's glory. But I was surprised when I started looking at the context, the, the surrounding verses, at the connection between that and the good of others, pursuing the good of others. That surprised me. I, I don't know what I expected. I suppose I expected more focus in Paul's teaching here on maybe our, you know, speaking the gospel. It includes that for sure. Um, worshiping, and it includes that for sure as well. Um, our, our work our talent development, and includes that. But what Paul really brings to the fore here is relationships. He's really saying all these other things are secondary to this thing. The first commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself, and here's how you do it. 
And, and I thought, well, I wonder, I wonder if there are other verses that support this. Is this just like a one-off in Paul's teaching, and there are other chapters and verses that might teach something else? So, I, I looked up a concordance and tried to find other verses that dealt with what is our purpose. And I got to Colossians, um, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. which says this, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do you hear the echoes? It's really a, a, a paraphrase of that other verse. Whatever you do, do everything in the name and for the fame, for the glory of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through Him. So, I thought, okay, here's another verse. I wonder what's in this context. And if you go to chapter 3 of Colossians in verse 17, you'll notice in the lead up to it, it's all about relationships. And in the verses afterwards, it's all about relationships. It looks at parents and children. It looks at husbands and wives. It looks at employers and employees. It looks at the government and the governed. It looks at friends and enemies. God has chosen relationships as the primary place in which we glorify Him, in which we fulfill our purpose. So, Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 10, the message is the same. It's this, we glorify God primarily in grace and truth-filled relationships. God has connected, He's chosen relationships as the main way we glorify Him. So, go through your relationships and ask yourself, in these relationships, am I glorifying God? Am I making Him known as a grace and truth-filled God? Parents with your children. Children with your parents. Husbands to wives. Wives to husbands. Think of your neighborhood, your, your friends, your enemies, your neighbors, neighbors where you live, neighbors at work, colleagues, co-workers. Am I doing this, glorifying God in grace and truth-filled relationships? Siblings, brother, sister, fellow church members. Am I glorifying God in grace and truth-filled relationships? In each of these relationships, are you showing who God is as a God of all grace and of all truth? Of all grace and never sacrificing the truth, but never making what is not a truth a truth, leaving areas for different people's circumstances and situations where the Bible is not clear. Go through these relationships. Am I putting the good of others first? My wife, my husband, my, my children, my parents, my employer, my employees, my neighbor, my friends, my enemies. Am I sacrificing for them? Am I serving them? Am I, am I working to resolve conflict rather than causing it or ignoring it? or downplaying it, or running away from it. 
Because this was a massive conflict Paul was facing here. And he doesn't minimize it. He doesn't ignore it. He deals with it. And so in all these ways, we glorify God in grace and truth-filled relationships. So why am I here? I am here to glorify God in grace and truth-filled relationships. And we want to ask ourselves, how can we make God great again? And therefore, I would say to you, why don't you this week choose one relationship? Maybe the problem relationship in your life. It might be your home, it might be your neighborhood, it might, be, it might be our church family, it might be your workplace, whatever it is. Zero in on that and ask yourself, how can I fulfill my purpose in this relationship at this time? How can I seek the good of others? How can I serve others? How can I sacrifice for others? How can I put their comfort and good ahead of my own? How can I resolve conflict? Take grace and truth-filled steps to pull back the curtain, to spotlight, to see, and to appreciate the grace and truth of God in relationships. And why, why, why is this so important? Well, you think of Jesus. Remember John 1.14? It said, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. There it is, isn't it? There's the perfect Son of God who came and perfectly and continuously lived in grace and truth-filled relationships, and therefore we beheld His glory. He is the perfect pattern for all of His followers, but He's also the perfect Savior for all of His failures, our failures. When we think of this as our life purpose, who cannot here today say, I've failed. I haven't fulfilled this. I've, I've been a dismal failure. Well, there's hope because we have a Savior who has done this perfectly throughout His whole life and comes and says, I can cover all your sins with my perfect life. I, I can do what you have not done, and you will never do perfectly. And so here we have a great opportunity to start with a clean sheet, with a fresh start, with all the past forgiven and washed away, and therefore every motive in the world to start glorifying God again in grace and truth-filled relationships. That's our purpose. That's our metaphor. That's our image. That's the way we are to view our lives. And that will change the way we live our lives and our eternity. Let's pray. Glorious God of grace and truth, help us to unveil Your glory, to spotlight Your glory to see Your glory, to appreciate Your glory, and to show 
your grace and truth-filled glory in all our relationships. Amen.